seconds and counting. Mission Control, this is Jupiter 1. The Robinsons are all tucked in. We are ready to fly. Major West, your escape vector is clear of all traffic. Up is go on your command. Roger, Houston. And the monkey flips the switch. Hello and welcome back to Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast all about the films at time abandoned in the cosmos. I'm Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time space cowboy, Andrew Phillips. That means hello. And today we're looking to the skies to review the long-forgotten reboot of Lost in Space! What is wrong with your voice? I, I don't know. Still doing it. I can't say that off! Oh, it's right, it's this one here. Sorry. Um, there it is. Oh, thanks. Sorry, just a reverb effect, guys. <laughs> but should this space family be saved from forever wandering the galaxy, or are we lucky to be rid of this set of unlikable assholes? Find out after the trailer. All fossil fuels are virtually exhausted. The ozone layer is down to 40%. Every school child knows that our recycling technologies will cure the environment. Every school child has been lied to. In two decades, the Earth will be unable to support human life. The future of mankind... There's a lot of space out there to get lost in. ...is about to be placed in the hands of a brilliant scientist. You're off saving humanity. We can't compete. My only condition for accepting this mission was that we could bring the children with us. T-minus one minute and counting. His family... This is Jupiter One. The Robinsons are all tucked in. We are ready to fly. And one man... Never fear. Smith is here on his own mission. Destroy all systems. Farewell, my platinum-plated pal. Destroy Robinson family. We're in the children! What was the price tag you put on our future? We show you in the sun's gravitational pull. The hyperdrive. It can be thrown anywhere in the galaxy. Anywhere but here. Initiate. We're lost, aren't we? Now of planets in the universe that's not one of ours the only one they're searching for that's not even human is the one called home nothing good will come of this you being the expert on space exploration no trust me major evil no evil. i'm detecting motion Hang on! my family is on this ship and you will follow my orders you finished hosing down the decks with testosterone i may have found a way to get us off this planet I'm thinking this is your basic kiss for luck occasion. Thinking? It's not really your strong suit, is it? Ouch. Danger, Will Robinson, danger! Cool. I'm coming back, Will. I promise. Take care of my dad, okay, robot? Affirmative. sucks. Can we go back on her oxygen so she's not quite so annoying when she wakes up? Okay, that's it. I'm gonna turn this spaceship right around. Lost in space. I loathe children. From the acclaimed director of The Reaping and the Oscar-winning writer of Batman and Robin comes Lost in Space, a big-budget reboot of Erwin Allen's much-loved television series. 
William Hurt is Professor John Robinson, a scientist who saves the world from his desperately annoying family by shooting them out into space. On their way to help colonise a far-off planet, their craft is sabotaged by Dr. Commissioner Gordon, and they all soon find themselves lost in space. Joey Tribbiani, Jar Jar Binks Mark II, and Sexbot 5000 co-star, along with three accomplished actresses who are giving nothing to do. Now, I nominated Lost in Space for today's episode of Best Forgotten Movies, primarily because I accidentally caught the last 20 minutes of it on television not too long ago, after forgetting it even existed. (laughs) That wasn't my first time with this film, though, as I actually saw it not once, but twice at the cinema when it was first released. Oh my god. So, Andy, are you familiar with Lost in Space whatsoever? I'd seen it a couple of times in hi-fi shops. (laughs) You know, when they used to play whole movies to demonstrate their... (laughs) Uh, technology before they cottoned on that oh we could just play clips yeah they used to just play whole films so i caught probably about 25 percent of the film especially the second half yeah like when you get into the time bubble stuff i do remember some of that stuff i remember reading the making of book because i used to love well i still love making of books and i remember reading yeah. it in dylan's or somewhere like that but yeah i never actually saw the film because i knew the reception it got even at the time, I remember it wasn't particularly well received. Yeah. Then after that, I never really bothered revisiting it. To be honest, I'm more familiar with the Lighthouse family song Lost in Space, which was originally written for the film, but then got rejected. They were actually forced into not releasing that single until two or three months yeah. after the film had come out, yeah. just so there would be no overlap. Yeah. That's how much they didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Although in a weird way, it's kind of more fitting for the film than what they ended up using at the end. Yeah, because they used some remixed version of of the actual Lost in Space theme. Yep. And it doesn't fit with the film whatsoever. No. Like I say, I remember seeing this film twice at the cinema. I mean, this came out around the same time as Wild Wild West and stuff like that. That's another film I went to see twice at the cinema oh. in the same day. In the same day? In the same day, yeah. Oh. That, I mean, that, that just goes to show just what my taste was back then. <sighs> but um, I, I don't know, Lost in Space, I've come back to it every now and again. Every couple of years, I seem to end up watching it for one reason or another, <laughs> and then completely forgetting that it even exists. Yeah, it's definitely a lot more forgotten than those films. Yes, definitely. It doesn't really get drawn up in conversation at all these days. There are certain films like Godzilla, certain other yeah. films that came out in 1998 that are brought up. Even then, like they're more notorious, whereas mm-hmm. this is because it's not quite as bad but not good either. It's in that weird middle ground, so it's middle of the road, so people forget about it more easily. Well, that's what I was going to say, in fact, is that it was something of a flop in terms of critical reception, not to really give the game away before we actually get into it. Yeah. But yeah, it's still not even mentioned as being like one of those famous flops from the 90s or Mm. anything like that in the same breath as Godzilla, Wild Wild West and the like. Mm. It has been forgotten. And I guess that's why we're covering it on our show. Indeed. And that's what we're here to ask is whether or not it should have been forgotten and whether or not there is actually something worth remembering. Mm. So before we do that, let's move on to the context. Let's set the scene for when this film was made and how it was made and who made it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there really isn't that much on the making of the film. But really, to begin, we have to go as far back as the TV show that showed in 1965 to 1968, I think yes, it was. Yes, it was, yeah. And that was created by Erwin Allen. Yep. And it was a very kind of whimsical show. It was a bit goofy and campy, which is something that this film is not really. Yeah. It's, it's campy, but perhaps not in the same way. No. 
so that's when the show came out and for years the movie rights were in flux nobody really picked them up or wanted to make anything of it which is strange considering there's a lot that you could do with this it's essentially the swiss family robinson's in space yeah rather unsubtly yeah as as they share the same <laughs> the same surname. name yeah it's, <laughs> it's that much of a ripoff yeah but it wasn't until the early 90s, I think it was, and I don't know which producer, but Akiva Goldsman on the commentary to the film speaks of a producer that called him up and said that the rights were available for Lost in Space and he would buy them if Akiva Goldsman would write the film for him because he remembered that Akiva Goldsman was a fan of the show. So anyway, yeah, he was hired as a writer soon after Stephen Hopkins was hired as a director. This was following his success or semi-success on The Ghost and the Darkness, which is a remarkably different film. (laughs) It's about Val Kilmer and Michael Douglas hunting lions. This was a change for him in that regard. As yeah. It was a big budget space movie. Well, this is the second Stephen Hopkins film yes, we've done on this series already. So like Russell Mulcahy, another unlucky director. Yeah, I'd, I'd say even more so. I'd say actually that Stephen Hopkins has probably had more success than Russell Mulcahy. Though. Yeah. And especially with his TV work now, we cannot forget as well that he was one of the instrumental filmmakers involved with the making of 24 on his first season and he directs some of its strongest episodes yeah so he was hired as a director on this film and they wanted to take it into a more gritty direction they wanted to update it and i guess make a sexier version of lost in space and strip it down of its campy elements Mm. and i guess we're going to get into later on whether or not that was indeed the right direction to take this series Another little tidbit of information I have is originally the entire cast was supposed to make cameo roles or the entire living cast of the TV show. The only one that opted out of that was Jonathan Harris. Yeah, Jonathan Harris, who said in an interview with TV Guide prior to the film's release that I will have you know, I have never done a walk on or bit part in my life and I do not intend to start. He then went on to say either I played Dr. Smith or I do not play at all. Yeah. And the role went to Gary Oldman. Uh, You know, it's... You can't really argue with that. No. (laughs) And I guess the only other little piece of information I have on the film is that when Matt LeBlanc was cast, he was still working on Friends at the time. Yeah. And he had to jump from one set to the other. Well, fly. Yeah, Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. That must have been uh, Flying across the world. Pretty tough. Yeah. (laughs) And there's a scene in the film in which he wears this rather cool Iron Man-esque mask. It looks like the Iron Man Mark One mask. Yeah. And that originally came about because they couldn't secure Matt LeBlanc for the amount of time they needed him. So they had to come up with a reason to obscure his face. <laughs> so they get a stunt double in. Exactly. But then they found out that actually Matt LeBlanc was available, but they liked the mask too much at that point that they didn't want to get rid of it. Mask is pretty cool. It is a cool mask. It was one of the... Um, money shots on the trailer Mm. so i imagine that was one of the few special effect shots that they actually finished yeah (laughs) (laughs) and matt leblanc wasn't even the first choice for this role it was was? meant to go to sean patrick flannery Ah. of uh, young indie fame but they deduced that he looked too similar to william hurt they would look too more like they were related okay but then it was originally offered to matthew perry which I can't see at all. No. And then it went to his friend's co-star, Matt LeBlanc, who's much more appropriate for the role. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I can't see Matthew Perry no, in the role. Not at no, at all. Maybe when it was campy. Yeah, but, I guess um, so. Yeah, if the tone of the film was different, if it was more like the actual TV show, then yeah, you could see him in the film. But not, not in this, not in how it is. 
on another note, Gary Oldman was the first cast member to sign for the film because he wanted to be in a family film. Ah. And this was the first proper family film that he was in. Yeah. Up until this point, because obviously he was mainly known for doing rather strange roles in adult films. Yes. And obviously this wasn't the right family film for him, but he did find a franchise a couple of years later down the line in uh, Harry <laughs> Potter. Harry Potter. Which, again, he was... Um, when he signed for Harry Potter, he hadn't read any of the books, so he didn't realise his character was going to get killed off. Sorry, spoilers for anybody who's not seen it, <laughs> which would be like one person in the whole world. So he thought, oh yeah, I'm going to sign this up. Eight yeah. films, great. It's uh, a series for life. <laughs> and then he read the script for when the fifth one came up and went, ah. <laughs> ah, well, at least they could bring him back as a force ghost. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's strange, because I remember around this time in Gary Oldman's career, I remember being a kid, I really liked Gary Oldman as an actor, but all he was in was films as bad guy roles. He always yeah. sort of villain roles. Yeah, on like Air Force One, yeah. Fulfillment, yep. Leon. But he was definitely a uh, rent-a-villain. Yes, he was. And and this was at a time as well where Hollywood was very interested, largely thanks to Hans Gruber and Alan Rickman, but they were very interested in Euro villains, yes. especially people that came from the UK, from you know Great Britain. <laughs> we make good villains, apparently. Yeah. So now that we've set the stage, let's talk about what we thought of the film. So, Andy, what did you think about Lost in Space and all? Well, I kind of enjoyed it. It didn't offend me. Middle of the road would be a good phrase to use for this film because it is neither one thing or the other. It's Mm -hmm. one of those films that just sits in the middle, which is why it's been so forgotten, I think, because it's not a a so bad it's good film. No, no, Uh, it's not. But it's not hitting on all cylinders. I think one of the things that we really have to clarify before we start getting into the film is that neither of us are real fans of the show. No. I've not really watched it. I've seen the odd episode and I've seen more parodies of Lost in Space than I've actually (laughs) seen Lost in Space. My knowledge of Lost in Space is really taken from The Simpsons and their constant referencing of it among many other shows. (laughs) so i have no fondness or no nostalgia or anything like that so i'm really approaching lost in space the movie simply as a movie not as an adaption or although i think at this time so much time had passed that i think it was most audience members would have treated it like that anyway because yes i knew that there was a tv show but it hadn't been broadcast in the uk and i don't think it'd been rerun in the states that much either so I think most general audience will have just looked at this film as a new film. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I know the kind of tone that the original show had, and this doesn't really go for that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it. I I was aware of the tone of the show, and everybody knew, danger, danger, Will Robinson. And I've read a few reviews where people have been very hard on the film because of how it compares to the TV show. So I just wanted to clarify straight off the bat, I don't have that because I don't know the show. That said, I wrote about it on Twitter while I was watching it. I live tweeted a couple of times while Mm. I was watching it. And I said that it was a piece of shit. And that's when I was about half an hour into the film. (laughs) I always forget that at round about the hour mark, it actually finds its legs a little bit. Mm. It's around about that point it becomes a film that I actually quite enjoy. So it's got things in it that I like and things in it that I hate. And I guess we really need to get into that and start with the writing. Yeah. Because uh, this is an Akiva Goldsman script, who many know from Batman and Robin, who is also an Oscar winner for his work on A Beautiful Mind. (laughs) (laughs) What a weird career. It's a strange old career. 
I mean, with Batman and Robin, is that him doing someone else's bidding and someone else going too far with it? Perhaps it has that element to it, but also he worked on Batman Forever. So if he had a bad experience or he felt he wasn't being represented in the right way on Batman Forever, because it's the entire same crew. Yeah, although you can you can argue that, I mean, Batman Forever is not a great film, but it achieves a certain kind of balance between the elements yeah. somewhat better than Batman and Robin does. And it feels like maybe the scales were tipped but maybe not by the writer. Well, I think the problem with the Batman series is that when Batman Forever came out and it actually made a significant amount of money, they realized that, oh, people want to see this campy version of Batman, so they just followed that book completely the wrong way. It was because Returns didn't do as well as the first one, and then they did that, and then it made more money, and they thought, oh, yeah, this is the way to go down, and they went down that road very far. Yeah. But, yeah, to go from this to A Beautiful Mind is, yeah, very very odd yeah it is because usually writers like this never get out of that trough no whereas no like forever caught in schlock yeah, whereas this guy seems to have crawled out of the hole yeah he does bit, yeah I, I mean i'm not akiva goldsman's biggest fan uh, for the longest time i i really didn't rate him whatsoever even the a beautiful mind script i have issues with yeah, because yeah. it treats his multiple personality disorder as being a shock twist. Yeah, well, I mean, A Beautiful Mind's another film that hasn't escaped parody over the years. I guess the thing that saves that film is great direction and a solid performance from Russell Crowe and Jennifer Connelly. Mm. But going back to Lost in Space. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what, what, what did That's you... That's th- what I'm talking about. <laughs> what did you so think I'm going to say that quite a few times during the, <laughs> during the show. Talking about lines from the film. They even had a Han Solo line. Yeah. Early on. What was it they said now? Major Don West played by Matt LeBlanc. But it's like they're really trying to set him up as this new Han Solo character. But is it where something that's come before and now has been looked at as a ripoff? Again. Because oh, there are certain elements in this film that are very Star Warsy. Yes, there but are. But then there's other elements that are like the black hole. Yes. <laughs> so, yes, there are. There are some elements that are like Event Horizon, yeah. strangely enough. Yeah. So it's a bit of a mishmash of everything. Mm -hmm. I guess one of the things that we have to talk about in terms of the TV show and the film is that even on the page, this script is very episodic. Mm. It moves at a breakneck pace for the first hour of the film. And you do genuinely feel like you're watching episodes of a TV show condensed into 10 minutes or 15 minutes at a time. Yeah, well, the first hour especially feels like a tv pilot yes well the whole film really does feel like a tv pilot to a series that never got made yeah yeah because i remember there was a journey to the center of the earth tv series that was made in 93 and that had a a movie to kick it off and it felt very similar Mm -hmm. and this had the same feeling where yay we're still lost but we're going out into the unknown and Mm -hmm. the end sort of thing it also feels like a tv show in the way that it sets up some of the peripheral elements like there's this whole thing about these terrorists that are trying to stop this gate from being made which is i guess like this stargate yeah it's going to make travel through the galaxy so much quicker and there's these terrorists trying to stop it and they're called gentex or the sedition yeah the gentex are these kind of the actual pilots of the ships that seem to be these genetically enhanced people mm. and they're controlled by an organization known as the sedition all these things are set up in the first half hour and go nowhere whatsoever. Yeah, and, and they're left hanging almost like if it was a pilot. Like, mm. join us next time when we find out who these people are and what they're up to, you know? Yeah, because you've got no indication of what their real beef is. No. What their whole ideology is. Because they're just there to be the bad guys that are trying to stop the good guys. And I thought it was trying to set it up for something. 
and it just disappears about no. 40 minutes into no. the film once they lose themselves in space that whole element of the film is abandoned well as soon as dr smith is yeah. on the ship and he tries to basically reverse what he's set up yeah when he gets betrayed by edward fox really that's yeah. when it all stops and there's a couple of brief mentions of dialogue relating it to later, but it never goes anywhere. No. Yeah, you're just never really aware of what their ideology is, which is rather strange. And is this kind of like quantum element to them making reference to Bond yeah. in terms of they're paying other people to do things for them and they are a shady organization? But like you say, what do they stand for? And why? Yeah, it's like, we want to stop you doing this because of reasons. Exactly, that's it, that's it. Yeah, because I just don't get it, because the whole plan is positive. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't understand why they're trying to stop it. It just seems a bit dumb to me. I think it's one of these things where they've got, oh, it was in the TV series, so we'll just put it in, but we don't really know why it's there. There's a lot of things like that in this. Well, like I said, the whole plot of the film is cannibalized from past episodes. There's about four or five episodes from the TV show that have had plot elements taken. And I think there's actually a thing on IMDb actually somewhere where it tells you the names of each episode where it's actually taken bits from. That's why it is so episodic and why certain key elements in the film enter the main action so late on in the day. Like this whole time bubble thing takes place far too late in the film to have any kind of proper impact or significance in the story because it is a cannibalized script. It seemed to me like... Like that is where the film actually begins as a story and it's so late in the day yes way after the hour mark because when they do find a ship in space that looks very much like event horizon this is after they've <laughs> gone missing and it's got the spiders on board and stuff like that. i think all of that stuff is cool i gravitate towards films and shows about people coming across these abandoned space wreckages and mm. stuff like that and oh what happens to them i love those kind yeah. of mysteries so there is something enticing about that but it doesn't actually add that much to the story no and in in fact i would say because of the way that the film is structured in that you do feel like you're just breezing through these brief episodes they're not actually lost in space for very long at all no. you never get a sense that they are genuinely missing and okay so they do play about with time and i guess to people on earth they've been gone for years perhaps decades but the group themselves only seems to be lost for about three days and all yeah and on the first day soon as they're lost in space they find a map that tells them where they need to go. <laughs> Which I didn't understand. Like, they needed to find that kind of aspect out much later on. Yeah. Like, in a second film or a third film. Definitely. Really. Maybe at the end of the second film if they were doing a trilogy of films, but not now. Well, I did read about what the second film was supposed to entail. Because this one ends with them kind of blasting off into space in generally the right direction. Mm. And their mission is to go to a planet called Alpha Prime and help colonize it. Mm. Well, in the second film, it was originally supposed to begin with them coming across Alpha Prime. But in the time that they've been missing, Earth has already colonized this planet and there's a settlement on it now. All right. So they just decide, oh, we'll just stay out in space. And that was going to be their movie, apparently. What? <laughs> exactly. That's your end game. I know. <laughs> Uh, um, but I did read that online. That's what's been reported. I don't know if there's much truth to that, but that's what I did read. What's the point in that? You're basically dumping the whole premise of the show in the bin. I mean, they kind of do it already with this one, but I do like the idea of them finding a ship that's trying to look for them, but actually is from the future, but they're actually kind of from the past, but it's not explored anywhere near. I mean, that's a film in itself. That is a film in itself, yeah. Because it's been cannibalized from so many different episodes. There's too many ideas at play in this film. Yeah. Too many ideas. And again, they just breeze through them. They do. I do like that whole side of things, that twist with time travel that there is when you come across this wreckage of a ship. Mm. Because I I did like the look of it. It reminded me of... um, 
well, a little bit of life force. And, um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, main, mainly the black hole meets silent running, like the whole look yeah. of the ship and everything. I did like all that. But yeah, when they got into the whole issue of the spiders and stuff, it kind of all got lost because mm-hmm. they needed a monster. Yeah, and I was watching it with my girlfriend and she was like, why does it always have to be spiders? <laughs> yeah. it's always we never spiders. find out where the spiders have come from. No. Uh, that's just something that happens. Mm. It would have been better, I think. Because if, we need if, an action beat exactly. here. Exactly. I kind of wish it would have tied into the Robinsons in some way, rather mm. than it just being spiders. Because that's something that just happens. It's not something that happens because of them. Or that ties back to them in any meaningful way. Like you say, it's just very plainly because they need a monster at that point. Yeah, because it could have been something that they developed whilst we were back on Earth that got out of hand that they Exactly, later. yeah. And it, yeah, it would tie back into them more, so it's almost like they confronted their own creation that's gone that's turned on them yeah which would have been more interesting but yeah it's completely unrelated and i don't know whether this is yet another thing that they were going to explore in another film does feel very much like oh we need something here so we'll put this here but like we were saying before there's so many things that aren't in the film because they weren't finished so we don't quite get a complete picture of what this whole film was like anyway although at the same time it's quite a long film so i don't understand where the stuff would have gone well that's what i actually wrote in my notes when i was watching it is that it seems very much like a film that has been cannibalized in post but at the same time it's two hours and ten minutes long so it's not like we've got a missing cut somewhere that would suddenly improve the film in some way in terms of its structure these problems seem to be what's on the page to me and it felt like a long film it did because of the episodic nature you feel Mm. like you've sat through a couple of films by the time it finishes yeah and i suppose it had no reason to be this long for the story that it had but there's no excuse really then for dropping the ball in terms of the characters because you should have plenty of time to really establish who these characters are and what the issues are because i don't get a feeling really about this father and son element of the film until they crash land at the halfway point yeah and then characters start to talk about it more openly Mm. Uh, because the main relationship of the film seems to be about professor robinson the father and his son and his son feels like his father is neglecting him because his father's always off doing science shit Mm. and it feels flimsy yeah it's very flimsy and it doesn't actually come into play until much later in the story and when it does it becomes interesting But I guess that ties us into another issue the film has, which is time travel. Mm. Because later on, the father character is confronted by an an older version of his son when he enters this time bubble. And his son's trying to create this wormhole in space and time to jump back in time to stop his family from ever going off into space. And he's being guided by Dr. Smith, who's changed into a spider. Now, bear with me on this one. (laughs) But it seems that things in the past don't really affect the future and there are things that are happening differently in the past. Uh, The characters are dying in different ways than this future character tells us. But it doesn't affect anything that's actually happening to him. Yeah. Shouldn't it have ripples in space and time? It becomes very confusing when you actually start to think about what's happening with this time travel aspects of the film. I mean, it's nice, but it's so confusing. And also, it just doesn't make any sense even on a character arc level. Like... The whole idea, yeah, he's planning to go back in time to stop his parents from even setting off. But Dr. Smith is planning to go back himself and seed himself throughout the galaxy, basically. Go back and seed himself on Earth. Yes. And there's a point where Will works this out. And I was like, it took you 20 years to figure this out. (laughs) How fucking dumb are you? How evil did he look? Obviously, he's the bad guy. He looks like a giant Spider-Man. I mean, not Spider-Man. He looks like a fucking ring wraith. He does, yeah. Like fucking Grim Reaper. He's genuinely got an egg sack where his balls and penis should be yeah 
He is a spider. Yeah. He cannot be trusted. <laughs> and what happens with that? Because the reason he becomes a spider is because he is infected by one of the spider creatures. Mm. I guess that's the way that the spiders really play into it is by... Yeah. They give a reason for the writers to show the monster that Smith is on the inside mm. reflected on the outside. I guess that's what it gives him an excuse to play with. But It's still incidental. And actually, even in the past, once we find out what he grows into, he's still infected by the end of the movie. Yeah. The movie does nothing to really change that about the character. No. He's still going to grow up into the spider creature that could kill them all. Mm. Oh, that's all for the second film. Oh, all right. Okay. Film. Yeah. They wanted to keep that. I guess that's more of it. this being a pilot episode again. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. yeah. You, you want those things hanging over. Yeah. you got to leave everything hanging. Well, he left nothing hanging at the end, did he? No. He's got his hey. Yeah, he um, got his sack cut open. And he basically got eaten by his own sperm. Yeah, they even look a little <laughs> bit spermy because they're <laughs> the completely white. white. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's the uh, subtext there. Mm. Very subtle. Well, this is done by the man who directed Predator 2, so yes. we're not expecting subtlety here. I like Stephen Hopkins, but subtlety is something that he does not do. No. Going back to the whole structure of the film and the editing, I mean, this is another thing. You always notice that there's something wrong with the film when it starts with a voiceover. Immediately. Explaining the plot of everything. I think this is problems either with the script or with the edit, where they've not established what the situation is in any better means than yeah. doing a tacked on voiceover over a rather shoddy CGI looking space station. It's so tacked on as well that it starts as soon as the image comes to life. Yeah. So the tone is not set. We've got no atmosphere shot. There's no sense of music. It just starts straight away voiceover. And you can tell that it's something that's been done in post because it doesn't actually really fit. No. I actually thought it was a trailer. When it started, I, I didn't realize until he was at least two lines in that, oh, no, the film started. Yeah, yeah. It sets up the Gentex, the Sedition, and stuff like that. These things don't matter no. 20 minutes later. No. Once they're in space, nobody cares. Because to be honest, the only thing you really need to know is that the Earth is dying after how many wars they've had, and they're trying to find a new home. Yeah. The end, that's all you need to do. I mean, it's basically interstellar. <laughs> but yeah. in a really camp way. <laughs> it it's, is. It's, it's not like, like I say, well, it's not an original. It's just basically you're finding a new home for something, and that's all you really need to know. And it's all about the things going wrong, but you didn't need to have all this Gentex stuff like to do that. No. You just have someone sabotaging it for a different reason, but for a more sort of slightly grounded, less grand reason, really. Yeah. I guess one of the things that we really need to actually get into is the tone of the film. And the tone that both Akiva Goldsman and Stephen Hopkins have strived for. Because, as we've said, the TV show is a lot more campy, a lot more whimsical. But there's one thing that this film really lacks that it should be full of, and that's wonderment. Yeah, wonderment and fun. Yeah. Because this film isn't particularly fun. No, no. They're coming across alien races. There were these spider parasites, alien planets, time travel... They're finding abandoned spaceships out in space. Mm. And nobody seems to care. Nobody no. seems to be approaching it with the type of wonder it needs to be approached with. Mm. Nobody seems to be wowed by these discoveries. Mm. It's just they just plod along. And that's something that really hampers the film for me. Even when it does eventually find its legs in the second half, it's that profound lack of wonder that stops the film from gaining any kind of momentum for me. Yeah, it's not as bad, but I feel almost like we've got a slight case of the episode ones here where everyone's a little bit too flat and stoic yeah. in their roles. No one's really having a lot of fun with it, apart from Gary, Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman, yeah. He's the only one that really gets what he's in. 
including Matt LeBlanc as well, like he's definitely taking it as a serious movie role because I'd imagine he'd want to be a serious movie actor and this is what he could get. Yeah, he's playing it a lot different from Joey Tribbiani. Yeah. He's playing it a lot more seriously, a lot harder. Yeah. Whereas, to be honest, the character could have done with a couple of Joey-isms. Yeah, he needed, well, we just needed a few winks to the audience, yeah. really. It kind of gets there in places. I mean, the only time it really sort of comes alive is when he's with um, Heather Graham's character. We yeah. get a little bits of that. On the other hand, like, William Hurt, he looks like he's at the point of tears sometimes. Like, he just looks like he's about to cry all the, yeah. all the way through the this film. This is a family film. It's, yeah. And his character is just so serious. He's like fucking Qui-Gon Jinn. Yeah, he is. He is he's just stoic. So I'm not sure that that's, like, miscasting in a way, because I do like William Hurt in other things, but I'm not sure whether he was the right fit for this kind of film. No. Probably needed someone a bit more comedic, a bit more lighthearted to really portray that character. And I think the problem is the character as well. The character has no charisma. There's actually only one scene where um, after the spaceship has crashed on this planet where there's time things happening, where he gets it on with Mimi Rogers. And that's the only time that his character seems to be having fun with anything. And it seems to be that the ship's just crashed. So he decides him and his wife are going to get it on. Yeah. That's the only time he has any fun. But yeah, it's all at the wrong moments, isn't it? Yeah. I'd say... If you're going for this more sort of fun, campy tone, the only other person that really fits with that would be Lacey Chabert. Yes. Because she's the only one that's doing it on the more goofy side. Yeah. Because obviously, yeah, she is literally like the voice of the wild thornberries and American TV animation, really. The first season of Family Guy with Meg. Yeah. Yeah. She's the only other one that's like that. Yes. That would fit that more campy tone. Because she's kind of almost like slightly out of place in the rest of the family because she's playing it like that and she's made to look like that but everyone else is kind of fairly just normal and Mm -hmm. a bit dull yeah she's quite colorful as a character and it's played quite colorfully but it's just kind of a shame that she's not really given anything to do no i mean we have to talk about that because the women in this film are really mishandled oh yeah yeah especially in the second half i mean it gets more interesting in the second half but i have a real issue in that it doesn't quite get over the restraints of 1960s TV. Yeah. Because, obviously, back in the day, when they used to have Lost in Space Adventures, the men would go out on the adventure, and the women would stay at home and set the table, and yeah. things like that. Yeah, they don't quite do that here. I mean, they are helping to repair the ship, but not one female go through that time bubble. They're not taking part in the adventure, really. No. And whenever they do, they're more just tagging along. Yeah. They never make any discoveries of their own. Even when they come across that abandoned spaceship, their job mainly, like Mimi Rogers' job, who's, I mean, Mimi Rogers is a great actress. I recently watched her on Ash vs. the Evil Dead, and she yeah. played a deadite. And she plays it up brilliantly. Yeah. But the one task that they're given to do is to sit in a spaceship and tell them what the organism is. And stuff like that. Oh, we're, mm. we're getting something on the sensors. They're essentially the motion tracker from Aliens. <laughs> that is their job. There's some really patronizing stuff as well. Like, even just, like, the whole West babysitting angle. Yeah. And, yeah, his whole thing with Heather Graham as well, which they kind of played up a little bit, but even by the end, it's still very stock traditional romance. I think the only time his character really works for that romance is when he draws Porky Pig on the window. Yeah. I was like, ah, oh, that's a nice yeah. little touch. I like that. That's when that character really comes alive, when you've got moments like that. But at other times, it's, yeah, it's just still a bit too Mr. Air Force pilot. Yeah, sort of thing major. Yeah, and um, it's a real 1950s, 1960s look at gender roles. Yeah, I think the other thing is as well that I've really noticed um, 
there's no chemistry or real link between the family. You know, no. They don't feel like a family. They just feel like a group of people. I think the problem is they've gone too far into trying to make them dysfunctional in that they've kind of misunderstood that dysfunctional doesn't mean that they shouldn't have chemistry. Yeah. So they've almost tried to make them too separate. Yeah. When if you look at something like The Incredibles, which is about a dysfunctional family of superheroes, all of those characters work together brilliantly. Yeah. They bounce off each other, even when they're at their most dysfunctional. Dysfunctional doesn't mean they don't work together as characters. Because mm. none of them even look related to each other. No, like, no they, they just don't. like picked a random bunch of actors and it's like, try and make it work. I think that gets better once Jared Harris is introduced because he does <laughs> he look looks nothing as, like his younger self. He looks nothing like his younger self, but he looks a little bit like William Hurt. Yeah. And that's that's what they're going for. <laughs> You're right. He looks nothing like his younger self. Yeah, I mean, the kid looks like the younger kid in Malcolm in the Middle. Yeah, he does. He looks like Dewey. Yeah. It's that thing. I mean, I think I think Mr. Plunkett mentioned it in one of his reviews that like, everyone hates a smart kid. Yes. Because I think what happened was because it was like too good, mm-hmm. it really made that whole father son storyline that they were trying to go for. It made it flimsier because yeah. the kid was a bit of a dick, really, because he was like too smart for his own good. I've actually written my notes that the kid is a dick. Yeah. And it's primarily because of one scene. Everything starts to go wrong for the Robinsons once the robot comes alive. And it's been programmed to kill the Robinson family. Kill robbers and family. Yeah, so it, it pretty much goes through the ship trying to destroy everything and trying to kill the family. Everybody almost dies. Yeah. Later on, the kid decides he's going to fix the robot and put his own twist on its personality in there, in its programming. Mm-hmm. But the next time we see it, the dad is walking through the spaceship. Bear in mind, his family just almost got slaughtered by this machine. And then this robot comes out of nowhere going, kill, kill, kill Robinson family. And we find out that the kid's actually he's controlling it and he's talking down a microphone that's such a dick move <laughs> yeah. this robot almost killed his entire family now you're traumatizing his father by following him about the ship with a robot going kill kill robinson family his daughter almost died <laughs> well and and it's the whole reason they're lost in the first place yeah, yeah. it's just the typical kid at the science fair I mean, don't make him stupid, but, like, don't elevate him to, like, ridiculous levels because no one's going to root for or relate to that character. Yeah. And you need him to be, like, a bit more quirky, like, inventing stuff. Because you never actually see him really doing any of the inventing. Like, I mean, this is really weird to say, uh, and it shares its namesake in the surname, but the main character in Meet the Robinsons... Even that is done better in that film. I mean, that film is another film that's got a lot of problems with it. But Well, the film I was actually going to make reference to is another animated film, and that's Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Because the kid stuff and that, when he's trying to invent stuff, but it keeps going wrong. Yeah. That, that's great. Yeah. Why not have that kind of twist Because everything that this kid it? makes works, which is Perfectly. really boring. Yeah, yeah exactly. There's no, nothing interesting to it. You want to see him try and fail and then come up with something at the end that works. That's, yeah, he succeeds. And then he gains his father's respect. And, but it, none of that's here, and it's just... Mm-hmm. He's a smart kid and he's a dick. Yeah. And again, it weakens the whole time bubble storyline as well because you don't really feel anything for that character because no. he's always been a dick. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nothing changes about that character. He no. wants to spend more time with his dad or he wants the respect of his dad. By the end of it, he has the respect of his dad. That character does nothing to change that. Yeah, and it he's also happens. the character that lets Dr. Smith out as well. He's a dick! And he's stupid <laughs> enough to trust him as well. I've always thought there was something strange about Dr. Smith and those kids. Yeah. yeah. Danger, danger, Will Robinson. <laughs> Shall we finally move on to the filmmaking side of things? Yeah, I think so. I think we've talked about the writing, the characters, the story. Yeah. More than enough. I think it's time to talk about just how this film was made, what it looks like, how was the special effects. Well, they were awful. 
Well, the thing is, they're not. They're a real mixed bag, but with a film like this, you can't afford to have it a mixed bag. It has to be consistent. Well, they're very diplomatic about it on yeah. the uh, commentary that I listen to. And yeah, I say that the effects are awful. They're not awful. There are some truly terrible shots in this film, but there are some that work well, especially the model work looks And there's some that great. are really good, even for the time. Like It's a weird mix of some truly awful shots and some truly brilliant ones. I mean, even looking at it now, some of it actually stands up now. Yeah. But yeah, there's some real dodgy shit in this film. I mean, I think a lot of what doesn't work is in the first half hour of the film. Yeah. Especially any kind of establishing shot on Earth or that whole space battle in the first five minutes. Let's talk about that for a second because... It's a very strange opening anyway. Yeah. Because, yeah, you have that voiceover, you get the shot at the space station and then we're immediately thrust into this battle that we don't care about. Because we have no idea who these people are and what they're fighting and... The thing is I want to say about this space battle is it's the slowest space battle I've ever seen. Yeah. Each shot feels like it's double the length that it needs to be in yeah. terms of the speed. The camera moves so slowly. Yeah. It doesn't even make up for the fact that we don't care because it's not even viscerally exciting. And most of the dialogue during that scene seems to be cribbed from Star Wars anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Once we get to Earth and we see some establishing shots of Earth, it's a real mixed bag in terms of the special effects. I think they're trying to do this Blade Runner thing where it's overpopulated and overlit with neon and whatnot, but it looks like something from the new adventures of Johnny Quest. (laughs) And this is a show from the 90s, so you can imagine what it looked like. And (laughs) that's what this film looked like to me at times. And it's actually a reason why that they talk about on the commentary. And like I say, they're very diplomatic about what works and what doesn't work. And it's because they shot primarily in little old England. Mm. And at that time in the 90s, it was much harder to get the footage across seas to like ILM and stuff like that. So shooting in England and being based in England, they actually had to ship out most of the footage to about nine different effects houses. So you've got all these different special effects houses working on an entirely different special effect themselves. Some of them are coming back brilliant and some of them are coming back unfinished and some of them didn't come back at all. Mm. Stephen Hopkins says that he didn't find out what worked and what didn't work in terms of the special effects until mere days before the film had to be delivered. Mm. So even on the last day, after it had been through mixing and audio mixing and color grading and stuff like that, he'd get footage back that didn't work and then have to re-edit the film. Oh, wow. And so lines were cut, scenes were cut down. I mean, the film is already overlong, like we talk about, but perhaps it meant that they couldn't use the shots that they wanted to, and that's a result to other shots. That would be nightmare. Really, truly a nightmare. That's not a good way to be. So I sympathise with them, because I can't imagine working in that environment, just not knowing until the last day. And one of the things that didn't work was Blop. And we haven't really spoke about Blop as a creature. Or do you mean the monkey? Yeah. Well, originally Lost in Space had a little creature on board the ship that was just simply a monkey with tinfoil ears. <laughs> so, <laughs> in this one, they've gone for something that's more akin to Jar Jar Binks. Yeah. And I think as a character, it doesn't work anyway. It no, has no, no need to be there. No. It's just there because that was in the show. But it looks bad as well. Yeah. And there's actually a reason why it looks bad, isn't there? Yeah, well, the makeup effects, if there are any left in this film, were done by Jim Henson's Creature Shop. And even in the making of Booklet, there's lots of stills of them using this puppet, which is a rod puppet that was operated by about five or six people. And the thing is, I'm not quite sure why they said it would look bad, because it looked pretty good on the stills. Yeah, in the commentary, they simply said that it didn't work. Yeah. And they never really elaborated any further than that. Yeah, and so yeah, it didn't look good, so they ended up replacing it at the last minute with a CGI creation, but they said it didn't look any good either. No, they kind no. of stuck with it. 
because it was replacing the 11th hour, they thought they could get away with it. But once the footage actually came in, they realized it didn't work either. Mm. But they were already kind of cornered into using this CGI version of the creature. Mm. So they had no way to fix it. And you can actually tell at times because it's a creature that changes color. And at times they simply have it changed to like white mm. simply because it doesn't require them to do any extra work on the texturing <laughs> or anything like that. It's only there because there was a version of that in yeah. the original TV series. It's in the film through obligation only. Yeah, and it really shouldn't be there. No. I mean, the thing is, you can draw vast parallels with another 1960s TV shows, which would be all the Jerry Anderson puppet shows. There's quite a lot of parallels between this. And they used to have the monkey character in the first two proper super marination series they had a, a monkey called mitch in supercar and then they had a, a character called zuni in fireball xl5 which is the one that followed it after that point they got rid of it because they realized that it didn't do anything and they hated yeah. it so <laughs> even they got rid of it by, yeah. by the time that uh, it came on to doing stingray that kind of whole <laughs> monkey idea so i really don't understand why they even opted to have one in the first place because it did nothing yeah and there was no point to it well talking about jerry anderson for a second there is a scene that i really want to talk about in terms of the special effects working for the time that is yes and that's the launch of the jupiter 2 yes we think it's the jupiter 1 at first and then we find out as it gets into space it suddenly explodes and the mm. jupiter 2 is inside it mm. but that whole launch even though it's over incredibly quickly and there's no tension whatsoever mm. because we we know that there's something going to happen on board that could endanger the lives of the robinson family mm. that's never drawn upon during the launch whatsoever no. but the launch itself looks really quite cool and there are a couple of model shots that look fantastic yeah where you see the launching pad and the cranes hanging over it that looks like something straight out of thunderbirds yeah i love it and this is where the nods to the tv series work as well because the jupiter one craft looks like the jupiter two craft in the tv series yeah and they made it look very similar because it does look like a well he did speak on the commentary that the he wanted it to be a nice reveal and the reason he called the actual craft that gets him into space the jupiter one is because they wanted to kid the fans of the show into thinking they got the name wrong and then <laughs> it would explode and there's the jupiter two ah right yeah you know it's a nice little reveal i think that works really well actually yeah. it's a nice touch to be honest the bad effects are so evenly spread throughout the film that there's not one section that redeems itself like the whole opening film is bad anyway because yeah, we get this awful voiceover narration but it's done over a very, very poor CGI rendering of the ARC space station that they're on. And I read it in the IMDb and I haven't gone back to pause it but apparently it's so badly rendered that there's little vehicles that actually drive through bits of it. <laughs> through. They should like magically drive through stanchions oh, and things uh, as, as you go through the shot. Because it's yeah. quite an elaborate shot but it's obviously something where they've been over ambitious in the time that they've got yeah and never quite finished it because a lot of cgi shots do have these problems but they mm -hmm. have time to fix them whereas obviously this hasn't had the time mm -hmm. and it's just gone out as is and it looks pretty awful and it's a shame that it opens the film because it kind of sets in your mind oh it's going to be one of these kinds of films well i think one thing that i do have to establish when talking about the special effects work is that this film came out a year after the fifth element mm which features quite similar shots of Earth, but it looks so bad. It looks like a PS2 game. Yeah, and also... And Fifth Element came out the year before. And that would have been another film where they wouldn't have been able to send all of their special effects shots off to one company because that was a European production. Oh, it would have had less resources. So well, it would have, it yeah, exactly. Shot pretty much in the same places. 
Yeah. I think that was a 70 million budget or a 75 million budget. And they would have had less resources because it was entirely European funded. And again, it's got similarly ambitious shots. It's got mm. a similarly ambitious story. Even more so, I would say, actually. Yeah, definitely. And it all looks great. And it's overall a bigger film when you look at like, yeah. the shots. Especially when they get into the Flossed and Paradise stuff. Those sets are huge. And they do a lot with those sets oh, as yeah. well because there's a lot of action that takes place. And that that is a film that, like, that film doesn't age no it's so well done i mean like for me like we're never going to do that film on here anyway because it's quite beloved now i think mm-hmm. really but it's one of those films that strangely gets better every single time you watch it yeah it's because it, the weirdness of it makes it timeless yeah and you get uh, used be, to that weirdness exactly like, yeah you start to really enjoy it <laughs> yeah because when i remember when i first watched it it's kind of not what you think it's going to be and it's like oh shit this is no weird. it's very french yeah it's very french <laughs> it's very french yeah but uh, no, that's a great film. He will, ne- he will never top it again. No. He's just starting a, a new sci-fi film. Yeah. His first big budget sci-fi film he's made since The Fifth Element. I'm holding out hope. Yeah, but they just he kind of went rapidly downhill after that. Yeah, he's become something of a hack action producer. Yeah. And he writes a lot of films, but they all have the same story. <laughs> yeah. And actually, making reference to The Fifth Element again, The Fifth Element is a film that starts on Earth, it goes out to space, it revisit all these different environments, mm. but it never feels like it's set in a studio. No. Lost in Space feels like it's entirely set oh, within yeah. the confines of a Especially studio. Especially when they get on the planet. Exactly. <laughs> so soundstage I feel so claustrophobic when I was watching this film. Again, and that kind of impedes its sense of discovery and wonder because you know it's all just a soundstage. I can't help but think, why not go to somewhere like Iceland, film yeah. there? build some sets on real environments Mm. because even when they land on that alien planet there's nothing in the shots that they use to tell us that any of this couldn't have been achieved on location somewhere it's simply been done because of ease of access and because it's easier to do but it looks so much cheaper as a result but i think the other thing we really need to mention especially as a contrast to the failures of the blarp character on the whole, the Spider-Smith looks fucking great. Yes. Like, even now, it looked pretty good. I mean, I do think the CGI, we have to really look at it in the context of the time the film was made, and the CGI looks fine. And I like the design of the creature. It mm. looks kind of horrific. Yeah. Whether or not it fits lost in space no. is another thing yeah. entirely. But I love the creature yeah. when it's in its hood yeah. and it looks very Nazgul-like. Yeah, and e- even the way that they articulate the face as well, like even for the time, would must have looked really good. We're not quite sure whether it's like an augmented puppet or not, or whether it's a complete CGI creature. I don't think it is a complete CGI creature because I don't think they'd be able to do the cloth. It's not a complete CGI creature because, again, this was something I had Jim Henson for. Yeah. So it's clearly something that they've operated an animatronic at times within some shots yeah that's been augmented with cgi i think it's more just like a cgi face that's on yeah it's like there's there's some motion capture face thing which i have to think was it motion capture how did they do it i think it would have been keyframed but yeah i think it's just been like tracked onto it yeah sort of thing like there was a real person operating the puppet and then the face has been augmented with cgi because for the time that looks great yeah considering what was available to them as resources that looks great mm. and i say even when he gets rid of the cloak i mean it's not quite as good looking but it's not embarrassing no, it, it looks no. pretty good for the time that it was made yeah but yeah i think um again we're still talking about the special effects but they had to cut some lines from the film like uh when they come across the proteus spaceship and they are within the a garden when they first find blop Mm. that whole scene had to be re-edited because the special effects they got in were unfinished and unusable yeah and they couldn't have any more shots in the garden like exactly yeah because it looked pretty cool yeah it did yeah but again it's been edited such to show us the bare minimum yeah it looks very arthur c Clarke. 
Uh, yeah. Yeah, and it, like I said, it reminded me of Silent Running. It did, lot, definitely. Lot, but, it's got um, that there. But there was a line like that set the ominous tone of what was about to happen. And that was when Don West finds Blorp, he remarks how it looks like a child. And then Dr. Smith walks by and says, if that's a child, then what happened to its parents? And there's a scuttling in the grass. But they had to cut all that because the special effects weren't finished. And I have to wonder what else was cut from the film as a result. I don't think it was ever going to save the pacing, though, because it is so... It's breezy, but it plods along because of the episodic nature of it. Yeah. And it doesn't feel like there's any kind of... I mean, this is, like, really bad to say in a way, because you don't really want to be seeing the joins too much, but I don't feel there's any proper three-act structure here, because it is so episodic. Because when we get to the time bubble stuff, that does feel like a movie within a movie. It does. And that movie has its own beginning, middle, and end. And I think that's why it feels so long, because it feels like we've been through a whole movie before they even get to that point, and then this starts again. I honestly feel like you could put a couple of endings in this film and make it into a miniseries. Yeah. Because it does work in that way. Even the stuff with the Proteus has a beginning, a middle, and an end in terms of the acts. This is a film of probably about eight or nine different acts. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's basically, it's three movies bolstered together and each one has an act. Yeah. And apart from a little bit of connection with the spiders on the planet, there's very little to connect the three, mm-hmm. which I think is why it feels so long and disjointed. Yeah, it does. Because I remember when I, I watched the film and yeah, it felt quite breezy. I mean, it was never brilliant. But because the whole time bubble stuff was so separate and it started so late that for me, the pacing ground to a halt when that whole section started. I mean, it was more interesting, but the pacing of it just was sluggish. Well, it's because it's the first time we really get to stop and get to know these characters a little bit that the film just literally stops. Yeah. And it stops moving Mm. and just lets these characters kind of stagnate for a little bit in the same spot. Just so finally we can catch our breath and get to know who these people are that we've been following for the last hour. But by the time you get to that, you don't really care. No. (laughs) It's kind of like... I said I do find the time bubble stuff interesting, but I don't think it's particularly well executed, and I'm not sure whether it's as interesting as it should be, because I just don't think the way that they play it out, and Mm -hmm. I didn't find it that exciting. See, I like the mystery surrounding that. Not so much the payoff, because I think the time travel gets confusing towards the end of it, but I like the mystery of it, and I like the idea of bringing the Sun character back into it in a completely different way, by the father being confronted by an image of his son that's so much older yeah and and don't even get me started about the paradoxes that would have taken oh my gosh i know you have like young will meeting old will and i don't understand how will and dr smith ended up together given the timeline that they originally started off at i don't know why they're abandoned on their own yeah but also there's this whole thing that keeps happening with dr smith's character that he seems to know about everybody's plan even though he's never actually been present whilst they've been talking about their plans. Yeah. It happens twice in the film where he has a, a thing that he wants to do based on something that someone else has already said, but he hasn't been in the room when they've said it. No, no. It's almost like a scene is missing where we find out he's got some listening devices yeah, somewhere yeah. on the ship because we never see that. He's locked in a room, almost like a prisoner, and yet he knows exactly what's going on outside of that room mm. that has no windows. Yeah. It's a bit of a cheat. Yeah. I mean, is there a little shot of something where he does have some sort of device, but it's, I can't not, remember. it's not made clear enough. Mm-hmm. You need one shot of him doing that, then it would make a bit more sense. But yeah. it just feels like there's either bad writing or it's been a bad edit where they've taken mm-hmm. things out because he just seems to know everything and have yeah. a plan for something, even though he has no context or even knowledge about what's happening 
out of shot. It's like he's been watching the film as it's been playing out, and he's like, oh, I can do something here. And they tie together Dr. Smith and Will Robinson as well yeah. as characters who have a relationship. You know what would have been better, I think, if they would have set up Dr. Smith in a kind of sinister way as being something of a competing father figure for mm. Will Robinson. I mean, because they do at the end of the film where Dr. Smith as the Spider-Smith is calling older Will Robinson his son, even though he has plans to kill him and stuff like mm. that. And it's like he has been this father figure for him. But actually, in the film itself, as Dr. Smith is his normal self and Will Robinson is just a kid, those characters don't really interact with each other, like, at all. No. Until the last act. Yeah. And suddenly they're just pushed together. Because Will Robinson needs Dr. Smith for reasons. Yeah, and who gave Will Robinson the keys to unlock that door? I have no well, idea. Well, he someone who's dangerous and then let anybody open it. But he says he needs Dr. Smith to help him go into the bubble and find out where his father and Don West are going. But actually, Dr. Smith doesn't help him in any way. No. And also, I don't know what his bag is when they actually even get on the ship. Yeah. That's where I started getting really confused and like, what are they trying to do with this? Mm -hmm. And what is this plan? And uh... Well, again, it's because they've took so many elements from so many different episodes and yeah. kind of just threw them together and hoped that they made sense. If they wanted to go down that road, they should have done what Star Trek The Motion Picture did which was just look at one episode yeah. say, oh, we like an element of that episode. Let's use that. Yeah. With the whole Vija thing was actually, mm -hmm. uh, I can't remember what the episode of Star Trek's called. Uh, the Sentinel, that's yeah. it. I think it's from season three of Star Trek, the original series. Season three of three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's pretty much just a retelling of that episode, but on a big budget scale with yeah, different and then characters. The, the, and then the second Star Trek film is a sequel to another episode. Space Seed. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I think we have talked about Lost in Space as much as we can. I mean, uh, what are your final thoughts about the film, really? Like I said, it's not a film that's so bad it's good. It's just... Middle of the road. Yeah, it's middle of the road, and it has so many storing and pacing problems that really undo it. Uh, I yeah. mean, it's a film that it has problems in lots of different areas, but at the same time, it's kind of a shame because... What works on the screen does work quite well. Yeah. But I feel like they're hampered by... Obviously, they're hampered by the production, by having things not ready. And I can't even imagine how much of a nightmare that would have been to try and finish the film knowing that things were coming back not working. Yeah. But at the same time, yeah, they've been too ambitious with what they wanted to do with the material. They just tried to do too many things at once. And again, the, the main thing they've lost in trying to do this gritty version, they've lost any kind of sense of fun. Yeah. Because this should be a fun, breezy film that mm -hmm. goes really quickly. But you leave with a smile on your face. Yeah. I mean, it's never going to be a work of art because the original show isn't a work of art. But it doesn't achieve what people expected of the film. Yeah. And yet it is overlong and it is overcomplicated only in the fact that nothing's well thought through yeah i kind of have really mixed emotions about it i kind of sympathize with them but then also like you shouldn't have done this in the first well, place in this way that's where i'm at at the moment is that i sympathize with the filmmakers for some of the special effects and some of the reasons they've had to cut scenes down mm. but at the same time i also think both stephen hopkins and akiva goldsman started this film on the wrong foot mm. by taking it in the wrong direction straight from the off which is to make it grittier and less fun yeah and i think a film that is about discovery should definitely have a sense of wonder about it and that's something where they have definitely gone wrong and it's really hampered the film that said it's not a terrible film in the same way that wild wild west yeah, is a terrible film offensive. <laughs> yeah exactly 
If they'd simplified the story and had less story elements in there, you could have had more time with the characters and just let everybody have more fun. Yeah. So we're well on our way to forming an opinion on Lost in Space, but first we have to look at the stats and facts. Was this film a surprise hit at the box office? Was it well received at the critics? Just why has Lost in Space been forgotten? That's what we're going to find out. Mm-hmm. And first up, I have the critics. Ooh. Now the Rotten Tomatoes score is 27%, and that's with an average rating of 4.7 out of 10. And that's after 84 reviews, so it's not like we're coming at this with like the 10 reviews yeah. or something like that, like we did the Ewok special. I mean, that had none. Yeah. <laughs> and the general critical consensus is that the film was clumsily directed and missing most of the TV series' campy charm. Lost in Space sadly lives down to its title. And even the audience score for this is, after 173,000 ratings, 24%. With an average rating of 2.5 out of 5. I think the average rating's about right. It's about 2 or 2.5 out of 5, I think. Yeah. I'd say that yeah, the 4.7 is probably a more accurate yes. figure yeah. of what the film deserves. And again, I think the, the clumsily directed thing, I get it. But I think, yeah, it's one of those things where it's, it's always a funny one. Because obviously people are judging it on the end result. But we obviously didn't know at the time yeah. what they had to go through to get it there. It's always going to poorly reflect on your director when yeah. things like that happen. I mean, it's not like there's anybody in a film that's turning in a bad performance, really, other than I would say everybody's playing it perhaps, like we said, too stoically and too straight. But for what's being asked of them, the actors are doing well. The film, in terms of its direction, seems to be moving the right way. It's just so poorly kind of structured and plotted for mm. me. And I can't really blame Stephen Hopkins for the very varying qualities of the special effects mm. for reasons that we've already just discussed yeah so although i kind of see where they're coming from in terms of that consensus i also understand why that is yeah it's not terribly shot and it's not shot really no. well either again it, it does feel like a tv movie does now yeah like obviously tv movies have moved on a lot it kind of looks a bit like that where they've not had that much time to light it really well yeah so they've just done it as well as they can but they've tried well even that comes down to special effects because on the commentary Stephen Hopkins was saying that some of the shots he would get back and we're talking days before the film has mm. to be finalised would already be colour graded and they wouldn't go with the colour grading they'd already got for the rest mm. of the film so suddenly you cut to a shot that's colour graded slightly different uh. than the rest of the film yeah. which is something that apparently they didn't ask for but mm. some special effects houses just did anyway. I think what's happened is because it's it's a, it's a new line production. Yeah. I think new line themselves have been over ambitious in what they thought they could achieve mm-hmm. as a singular studio. Yeah. And in fact, I'd imagine Lord of the Rings actually benefited from this film's problems. Yes. Because they would have known what happened with this film and gone, right, yeah, we need to have a singular studio in charge of the effects Mm -hmm. for the most part. Because that's a film that's had even less resources to play on because it's an entirely New Zealand production. And it looks like they did learn some of the lessons off this film with with Lord of the Rings. And they would have been well into beginning production at this Mm. point as well when Lost in Space would have been in production. Okay, but over to Roger Ebert before we go any further. He rated the film 1.5 out of 4 and said, Lost in Space is a dim-witted shoot-em-up based on the old, I hesitate to say classic, TV series. It's got cheesy special effects and muddy visual look and characters who say obvious things in a very obvious way. If it outgrosses the brilliant Dark City, the previous sci-fi film from the same studio, then audiences must have lost their will to be entertained. 
I think that's what happened though. <laughs> it actually did happen. Oh, yeah, no. it's so sad, but oh. that is so true. Like I said, '98 is not a vintage year anyway yeah. for film. I agree with them. I think it's come out since why the film is in many ways the film that it is. Mm. Who is to blame is still quite up in air, but I can't disagree with them really. And moving on to Empire, it's a lot more favourable. It's a three stars out of five. And they say director Hopkins has at least produced a finished article that rips along while playing a more nervy edge than a smiley 60s TV show. Mm. And they do say in the review as well that the problem with the film is that we never really do get to know who the characters are as they're very one-dimensional. Yeah. In a way, I'd almost have to say that for a TV show, having a family of obviously the two parents, three kids and a pilot would have been fine but for the film i actually feel there's one character too many there yes like they should have gone down from three kids to two and i think it would have worked better because you would have just had like say one boy one girl having say the the girl be like judy yeah and having the the younger boy that's feeling a bit left behind because again at the end of the day the younger sister was very redundant i'd say that the one thing that the younger sister does in the film uh, that i haven't actually spoke about and one thing the film does right in terms of predicting the future is that she has this blog yeah that's very penny vision penny yeah, it's called penny vision but it's very youtube blog-esque yes it's really captured what teenagers are like today yep. in terms of documenting their every thought and every feeling via youtube and it's actually strangely accurate yeah it's like, funny because really so. i imagine at the time it would have been one of the more outlandish things that definitely done. yeah and it's probably the only thing that's actually stuck yeah <laughs> it's really funny <laughs> I think it would have been better if they'd molded those two characters together, the Penny and the Judy characters. Like I would have liked to have had maybe Penny's sense of fun because Judy's boring as fuck. Yeah, she is. And Penny's got a weird Lolita thing going on with Don. Yeah, Don West I was going to well. mention that. I was like, that's really uh, creepy. He gives <laughs> that seems a wink. to be her, That's the only time he thing. gives anybody a wink. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's not winking at the audience, he's winking at the child. Yeah, it's very Lolita. Mm. How you doing? <laughs> oh no, imagine he did that. They should have had at least one yeah, how you doing They should have. Oh. Oh. You know, I like Matt LeBlanc in this yeah, film, I, I'm I, gonna I, say. I mean, like I say, he's playing it a little bit too straight, yeah. but he's still the character I probably like the most out of everybody I apart so. from Gary Oldman. Yeah. Like, those are my two favourites in the whole film. I mean, with a lot of the Friends actors... Their film careers never really took off, and I can never understand why. And it's it's a shame, really, that this would have been his like movie debut, and it didn't do so well. Mm-hmm. Because I think that Matt LeBlanc's been kind of shortchanged in a lot of ways. Because I feel like, out of all of the Friends actors, he's probably the one that could have succeeded the most in film. Yeah, I think Jennifer Aniston has found her, She's the her, only little, one her market really... in doing gross-out comedies at the moment. Yeah. Well, yeah, recently, yeah, yeah, she seems to have got into that. But even beforehand, she was kind of floundering her, a little yeah, bit. Even in fl- Adam Sandler films, <laughs> yeah, got to. No one wants to be in those unless no. they're getting a lot of money. <laughs> well, that's what the that's the only reason they do it anyway is for the fucking money. Mm-hmm. Where does the fucking money come for those Netflix? For those films? Oh damn! Netflix. Netflix now sixty million. Netflix gave them to do Fucking the ridiculous hell. six. It is a ridiculous sixty million. <laughs> hey, it's a, probably a film that was probably made for six million. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's just all actors' salaries. It's all gone on his fucking yeah. trailer fund or whatever. I don't know. Even going back and revisiting some of his films from the past, I used to be like, oh yeah, Adam Sandler films. Yeah, he used to be good back then. And looking back at him, I'm like, was he good? Mm. Was they good? Or was I just a dumb thirteen year old mm. who went to see Wild Wild West? 
two times yeah. in the same day at the cinema. Yeah, because I remember like I think our friend Aiden who's coming on the show soon. I remember he tried showing us Big Daddy. Big Daddy. Yeah. Recently, I, I sat down with him and I said, "Oh yeah, no, this is okay. This one, isn't it? This is one of his old ones." And mm. we watched it, and not one of us laughed once. Oh, it was fucking dire. Yeah, it was dire and offensive <laughs> as well. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, maybe it's like uh, rose-tinted spectacles. Yeah, because I really want to say Billy Madison and oh, Happy, what's it? Gilmore. Happy Gilmore. Happy Gilmore especially, I really want to say, is great. And I have a feeling it still might be actually Happy Gilmore. Okay, so on to Lost in Space <laughs> <laughs> and uh, its box office figures. So, like I said, this is New Line going for a big budget production and not yes. quite succeeding. So this is a film that was made for $80 million, which at the time, bar your James Cameron films yeah. or maybe Steven Spielberg films, this was a very big budget film. It was, yeah. Yeah, so its domestic gross was just over $69 million and its foreign gross was $67 million. So that brings a worldwide total of $136 million, which is not a flop, not a hit, and I imagine they probably made about £3 profit based on <laughs> their marketing budget. Yeah, and they probably had to wait until home video to yeah, make that. I think so. I think it really goes to show just how little the film made that all of the actors were contracted to free film deals mm. and they only made this one. Yeah. I think a lot has to do with that. Not only the money that it made, but also the critical reception that we mentioned mm. earlier. This is the weird one, right? So yeah. this is perhaps the first major blockbuster kind of film for 1998 the first yeah. one was released in the year and this was the film to knock titanic off the number one spot probably did, for only one week did you know what they called it at the time what did they call it the iceberg i'd imagine for only one week that i imagine it was number one yeah the week after. <laughs> but, business um, as usual yeah. next week yeah looking at the films that it was up against bar titanic there's only one film in there that i could actually say was pretty good which was as good as it gets which oh is yeah, number eight. yeah that's quite a nice film yeah so it's up again so yeah you got lost in space at number one in its first week titanic at number two in its 16th week fucking hell so i'd imagine yeah it'd be number one again it's the 17th week mercury rising that oh, classic god you know uh, what that's another one i went to go to see I snuck into Mercury Rising. Well, a film that manages to be offensive to autistic people. It was awful. Oh, Even back God. then, I thought it was awful. I saw it only the once. I remember it was on the telly the other day, and my girlfriend's into, like, psychology, and she's like, that's not how autistic people act. Yeah. And it was just like... That's oh, a terrible film. awful, awful film. A reissue of Grease. Uh, was it number four? Again, I think it's an awful film. Yeah. I get a lot of stake for that, but yeah, Grease no, I is don't like it. terrible film. I want to see a musical version of it. I didn't like it. Morally bankrupt as well. Yes, definitely. Primary Colors. Oh, John Travolta. Mm-hmm. Wild Things. Oh, Wild Things. That used to be like every 13-year-old's favorite movie. Yeah, with De- Denise Richards. And Neve Campbell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Man in the Eye Mask. I went to cinema to see that as well. Yeah, it's yeah. all right. I enjoyed it. I yeah. enjoyed The Man in the Eye Mask. And at the bottom of the pile, probably the two best films in this list, I completely missed it. As Good As It Gets at number eight. Yeah. And Good Will Hunting at number nine. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. I don't know why I didn't miss that. I think I was just, I just saw Hunting. And then a film I've never heard of at number 10, The Newton Boys. No, never heard of nope, it. Nope, never heard of that one. Yeah, and it made 20 million in its first So week. it made over three times its opening weekend in its entire growth. So it's not like, it's not shit the bed. No. And the word of mouth hasn't been as poisonous as perhaps we think because, again, it's gone on to make three times that opening weekend, which yeah. is okay. But when you put it into perspective, and now I'd imagine this is why Titanic would have probably been number one the week after. Titanic was 
it made 11.5 million that week and it's 16th week and yeah. it was only a 24% drop on the previous week. <laughs> so that film was just coasting along like a motherfucker. Yeah. So it kind of got lost in all that, really. It got lost in space. But like I said, I, I would never accuse 1998 of being a vintage year for film. No, we had to wait until 1999 for that, I think. So that leaves me to ask just the final two questions that I ask at the end of every single episode. And the first one is, are you any closer to understanding why Lost in Space has been forgotten? I think we are. We think we've spoke about it. Yeah. It's just simply because the film's middle of the road. And the thing why it doesn't have any longevity, like the films we mentioned before, Wild Wild West and Godzilla and yeah, even the Avengers, it's not offensively bad. So it doesn't have that so bad it's good feel no. to it. It's not a fun film to watch with friends. No, no, no. So it doesn't have that longevity in it because it was all right, but a bit dull. It's not one of those films that gets brought up in conversation a lot when yeah. geeks have a conversation and over a fire and go, hey, remember that film? <laughs> no one talks about Lost in no. Space anymore. <laughs> because I don't think Lost in Space, the TV series, is even regarded as being a classic television series anyway. So it's not like something brilliant has no. been ruined here by this film. Even if it would have been so bad, it's good. Yeah, it's not sacred. Yeah, exactly. So I can totally see why it's been forgotten, actually. Yeah. And the final question is Lost in Space one of the best forgotten movies, or is it simply best forgotten? I have to say, and it's primarily because, like I've spoke about, it, the film's profound lack of wonder and fun, that it has to remain best forgotten. Mm. And that's not simply because the film is awful, because as we spoke about it, I do not believe that. It's just, in all, I would just recommend people watch The Fifth Element instead. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> yeah, no, I have to agree with you there, because I was a bit like, should it be there is some ambition there that's got lost along the way, yeah. and there are some nice bits to it, but yeah, I think that I think that there's more negatives that overcome the positives in this film, I think. Yeah. Just about. So, like I said, why is it? it's not an offensive watch, it's just not a particularly great one either. Yeah. Again, I mean, with properties like this, where it's not particularly brilliant property sometimes you can actually make it better yeah like for example i think somebody argued about this with battlestar galactica like oh this, definitely but, i would take up that mantle battlestar galactica the ronald d moore version of it yeah. is much better oh than the very 70s much so. version so when you've got a property that's not particularly brilliant and it never was looked at being particularly brilliant it was always looked off as a bit of a star wars ripoff that just nicked john dykstra yeah. and its footage was reused in there uh, was it uh what's that was it, oh. What was it called? <laughs> oh, what was it called? Something like Space Mutiny. Space Mutiny, yeah. Space Mutiny. Um, yeah. And it was always looked at in a bit of a funny light, like it's a bit goofy and a bit shit. Yeah, that completely elevated that whole concept to another level. So you can do this. Yeah. But because they didn't do that, they didn't elevate it into something that was much better than what the original was. And it could have been, it could easily have been. It's just a, it's a flaccid penis. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. It is. It is. I don't know why I even said that, but it, it, no, just, it, it's, it's, it's very flaccid. It, it's a flaccid film. Yeah. I like how the way you were holding your hand out like that. Yeah. It's flaccid. It's a flaccid penis. Like you're holding its weight. <laughs> okay, and that's all we have time for on this week's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at B4Movies, so please do get in touch with suggestions for possible episodes. Also, if you have the time to help us continue to grow our fan base, please rate and subscribe to our podcast page found in the iTunes store. We'll be back with our next episode as we're taking on X-Men Origins Wolverine. Danger, Will Robertson. Danger! (laughs) Featuring everyone's favourite version of Deadpool. 
But until then, it's bye from myself and blop from Andy. I apologize for him and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>